about okay. your time in Chestertown and the college. Yeah. Um, so if you could just start by saying your name and like when and where you were born. Oh, where, where I was born? Yeah. Uh, my name is Rolf Townsend. I was born in Easton, Maryland and lived most of my childhood life in Chestertown. Um, moved away in 1952 and have been in Annapolis ever since. So um, that's where I came from. <laughs> sure. Um, so what was, can you like just tell us a little bit about growing up in Chestertown? Like what was that like? Well, I think it was absolutely wonderful. Um, it couldn't have been any better from my point of view. I mean, uh, we had all the freedom in the world. Uh, I walked to school when I was in the first grade. Uh, nobody walked with me today. Uh, if you let your children do that, you can be arrested. It's terrible. But um, we, we just had a, a wonderful time. We didn't have television. We had radio. And we would come home from school and immediately meet friends and play games. We entertained ourselves. And uh, if you've been down to the fish whistle in Chestertown, well, that is where the power plant used to be, right there. It's now where they dock boats right in front of the fish whistle. Was it the uh, power plant for the entire town? Entire town. Wow. Yeah. And um, so at 5 o'clock, they'd blow a whistle. That was when the shift changed. That was our signal to come home. And we did, and that was uh, homework time. And then we listened to radio. We had... Uh, Tom Mix and Dick Tracy and The Shadow and several different radio programs. And after that, more homework and then to bed by 8.30, 9 o'clock. Yeah. Uh, so what kind of games did you play as a kid? We made up the games. You made them up? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, uh, we, didn't, we didn't have anything like footballs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. our, our school had no athletics. It had. It wasn't anything like a school today. Uh, the the bulk of our students were farm people, and so as soon as school was over, they had the bus picked them up, took them home, and they milked cows and fed the uh, the chickens and collected eggs and did all those kind of. There was no uh, baseball, football, or anything like that. Chestertown High. Okay. Yeah. Uh, elementary school and then uh, the high school. Okay. And uh, so we, we, we rarely had a football and do much about baseball, but we would make up games like football. That, uh, I remember my father had a, a piece of fat piece of rope that was used for cleaning his shotgun. Oh. And uh, so and it, you, you just thread it in one end and pull it through and it would clean the shotgun. And I got a hold of it and we would use that uh, as our, our treasure. And we would go down to one of the yards near the river and uh, we called the game Marco Polo. <laughs> and we choose up sides, and you, one person would get this piece of rope and try and get it to the other end of the yard. And then everything went. In other words, you could tackle them, throw them down, grab the rope, fight them, whatever. If you, got, if you didn't get the rope down there, you could pass it to your, one of your teammates if somebody else got it, then it turned around and went the other way. And we'd play that game for hours. Wow. 
every day. I mean, that was just one thing we invented. But um, there was, were no organized children's activities. And it, it was just you met friends. Mm -hmm. okay. And then after that, we usually had a job in the afternoon. I, I delivered newspapers. Uh, I think I started delivering newspapers when I was about 13. Oh, uh, well, um, first of all, it was rationing, okay. and um, it, it was er everybody focused on the, on the war. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there wasn't any other thing going on. It was uh, the papers, the radio was all about that and uh, so we did what we could as children and our parents all had activities in other words uh, one of the things the, the mothers and the wives did was collect bacon grease mm -hmm. that was used for making explosives and I don't know how but that's Everybody collected it, and it was delivered to the park. You know where the park is. We've heard that, and no one ever was able to tell us what it was used for. We've been, we've been thinking about it for <laughs> days now. <laughs> but uh, um, all scrap metal was collected and dumped in the park. And then they would bring a big, huge truck when it got to be a mountain, and it would get to be a mountain. Uh, they'd bring trucks in and haul it to the uh, Sparrows Point or one of the mills. Um, we learned how to be airplane spotters. And I, I was an airplane spotter right from the very beginning because I was a model airplane builder and did all that kind of stuff and was very into airplanes. Well, in 1940, I was 10, okay. and uh, 41, I'd be 11. But uh, you know, all all of this began before Pearl Harbor. In other words, it was pretty obvious that we were going to be doing something. Mm -hmm. But then, when Pearl Harbor came, that's when it all just came down. Well, I remember um, when it came over the radio that uh, now I, I can't remember whether we had TV then or not, but. No, I huh? think No, I think it was on the movies, in the movies. See, what we would go to the movies. Uh, if you know where Stam's Drugstore is. Mm -hmm. Well, right across the street was the movie was theater. The Prince's Theater? Well, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it was the new Lyceum Theater at mm -hmm. the time. And we would go there to see the newsreels. And uh, all the movies would start with the news. Mm -hmm. And that's where you got pictures of what was going on. And... Uh, so right away we were trained as as airplane spotters, but there was rarely an airplane flying by. Um, we'd sit at that um, station. It was about the size of an outhouse up right where the hospital is now, near the college. Uh, and I'd ride my bike up there, and it was a the house and a telephone. And you'd sit there, read a book, do my lessons, do whatever. And if an airplane came around, I had a pair of binoculars that was always there. And I'd look at the airplane, I had to identify it. 
and I had to say which direction it was flying. And I'd pick up the phone, and it only connected to one number, and that was some number where all that information was uh, gathered and put together. And I would tell them what kind of an airplane it was, what time it went by, what direction it was flying in, and that was it. I'd hang up, and I'd sit there and wait for another one to come. And it, it might be days before another airplane went by. Do you remember what kind of airplanes you saw? Um, mostly military airplanes. Uh, there were no jets back then, so... Uh, one particular type that was prevalent was called an AT-6. It's an advanced trainer, and it was being used for training pilots. So if an AT-6 went by, I would call and say, it's an AT-6. And uh, there, were, there were other fighter airplanes that would go by occasionally when they pilots were learning to fly them. And then also, um, one big manufacturer was uh, Martin. Uh, the Martin company over in Baltimore built seaplanes, planes that landed on the water. And every once in a while, one of those would fly by, being tested. So that was another thing we did. Um, well, yeah, then, then about that time, the mayor of the town, uh, Mr. Phil Wilmer, started the powder plant in, uh, up in, up in uh, the northern part of, do you know where the cemetery is? Well, it was sort of opposite the cemetery in that land back in there. It's an office complex now. And that was where the, we called it the powder plant because they worked with very high explosive powders called azide. And they built hand grenades in the, in that factory, and they they built a um, part of the hand grenade that goes down into the shell, and in it was a fuse and a detonator, and in the handle that went around it, and that was shipped off somewhere where they put the thing together with the high explosive and the shell but they would build thousands of those. And they made the, the detonators. I think they made the detonators, which was a tiny little thing about that big. And uh, somehow all during that, that kind of stuff was available to kids all over the town. You'd find it in the street. You'd find a hand grenade handle laying on Main Street. You know, I'd pick it up, take it home. I knew what it was. And uh, I found a box of detonators, and I knew what they were. And uh, so here I've got this treasure. I found it in the, in the gutter. And uh, I don't know if the workers would bring this stuff home in their pockets or purses or whatever but somehow it it got spread around the town and well that happened years later there weren't there were were occasional accidents but not not many and you didn't hear much about them during the war is they were building hand grenades and then they built airplane starters. I, I don't know if you heard about that, but um, 
You know what a shotgun shell looks like? Well, this was an exceptionally big sh air, shotgun shell. And uh, it was a cardboard case with a brass bottom. And it was loaded with high explosive. And they would stick this into the airplane engine, press a button, fire this, and it would kick the engine over. That's why when you saw pictures of airplanes starting in those days, there was always a big cloud of smoke came out of the side of the airplane. And so we built, built those. I say we built those. I was uh, 13, 14 years old, but uh, Mr. Wilmer lived down on a Queen, uh, High Street. He was the mayor. And his daughter, Ann, who had, lives in Chestertown right now at Heron Point. She lives at Heron Point now. She might be on the list, though. We've got a lot of people from Heron Point on the list to go yeah. to. Well, her dad was one of two people that started the powder plant. And so we would go, there would be maybe a dozen kids we go down and sit on her porch in the summer and put together the four or five metal pieces that went in the end of an airplane starter. We had a round disc and a piece that came up and we'd bend it over and there were a couple of other pieces that would we'd put in there and we'd sit around and talk and chat and laugh and tell jokes and that sort of thing and build these things. And we got a penny a piece for them. Was that and a lot back then? That was a lot. Okay. And uh, so, you know, I mean, you could put together, um, if you worked at it, you could put together five or 50 of them. That's 50 cents an hour you're making. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And, um, but we had a lot of fun doing it. And we would just sit there and put these things together. And then that all went up to the plant and that was used. I mean, we weren't the only ones making them. Anybody that wanted to could do it. And then the workers would take those things and put it into the thing and load it with powder and whatnot. And that was the second product that they did. And then the third thing they did was... Uh, they did a lot of um, of um, experimenting and checking of incendiary bombs. At least these are things I heard they did. I, I, knew, I was not in the plant until I was until a little bit later. You may have noticed in the book yeah. that yeah, I, you were the Boy Scout of the I I was one of the. Two Boy Scouts that uh, took Minnie Hicks up to the powder plant. She was a blind lady. Mm. And uh, so that was my only entrance into the powder plant. I got as far as the time card. <laughs> yeah, we actually saw the uh, newspaper article with you in it, uh, uh, escorting her. Yeah. 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 And, um, it's actually funny because when we first started this program, right. um, one of our like, teachers, Adam Goodhart, gave me that newspaper. Oh, who did? Adam Goodhart. He's head of the program that we're working with. Is that right? Or oh, he must have gotten it from the paper, newspaper. Yeah, we had the newspaper actually up and we had to pick out stories. Yeah. And I actually picked out your story. Yeah. And then I saw it in the book and I was like, look, I know him. Not, well, I don't really know either, but. Uh, another thing, we, you know, we did a lot of sailing in those days and I think I was about 16 near the end of the war but it was uh, still war was going on and uh, about five boats of kids guys sailed down the river and out in the bay and down to where the bay bridge meets the eastern shore and there is an Episcopal camp there, just south of the bay, where the Bay Bridge hits now. Mm -hmm. I think it's south, maybe it's north. 
maybe north, just a little bit from where the bridge comes in. It's called Camp Wright. It's an Episcopal kids' camp, and it, I went there when I was a little kid. And so when we got a little older, some of the girls that we knew became counselors there. So we sailed down the river to, to visit them at the camp. And um, they had to work all day, but after the kids went to bed at eight o'clock, they were free to meet us on the beach and we'd build a fire and sit there and chat and whatnot. And we did that. Uh, we landed down there and met them that night. We sailed around and explored Annapolis area during the day and then went back to be with them again in, in the night. And we just camped out on the beach. And then we headed home. <clears throat> and as we left Camp Wright, we looked across that um, Annapolis and there was a huge military hospital ship with a big red cross on the side of it. And uh, it was a white ship with a huge red cross. And so we thought, mm, let's go over and see that. So we sailed over and uh, there were wounded soldiers all around on the deck and they waved and yelled at us and we yelled back to them and sailed around the ship a couple times and then decided to head on home so we headed on up the bay and we hadn't sailed a mile from the ship and we saw this big huge box in the water right where we sailed by and it was just barely on the surface of the water, but it was a large box. And we sailed right by it, looked down on it. We thought, what in the world is that? So we went around and went alongside and grabbed a hold of it, and it was heavy as heck. And we pulled it up on the deck of the boat, and it said on the side, blood plasma. And it gave the name of the ship, the USS Sanctuary, which was the ship we just waved to. And it was a complete box of blood plasma. And it was all encased in cardboard that was waxed. So the cardboard was fine, and it was printed with those words all over it. So we thought, well, we should uh, take this back to the ship. And we turned around and looked, and the ship had pulled up its anchor and was starting down the bay. So we couldn't, so we strapped it down on the deck and took it all the way to Chestertown. And we went up to the Red Cross, which was on the corner of High Street and Queen Street, right near where we docked a boat. And we said, we got this box of blood plasma. What do you think we ought to do with it? Oh, well, we like to see that. So we got a wagon, and we put it on the wagon, and we towed it up to the Red Cross. They took one look at it, and they said, oh, my word. We'll find out where the ship is, and we will let them know that you got that. Lord knows how it ever got in the water. So... With that, they called the newspaper, and I'm sure you'll find an article about that in the newspaper because they came down and took pictures of us and picture of this blood plasma box. And uh, so those were all the kind of things that uh, went on. Uh, one day they brought a miniature Japanese submarine into town. I'm sure you'll find find that in the newspaper. We heard about the plane, but not the submarine. The what? We heard they brought a zero plane through town. Was it a zero? A Messerschmitt. 
Um, I don't remember that. Okay. I don't remember that. Maybe I, I, I don't know. Yeah, there was a submarine came in on a big trailer, and uh, remember seeing that. Uh, remember that I didn't know what to do with that box of um, detonators, yeah. and so I took took them in the garage. I was big on building things in the garage, and I spent a lot of time with my dad's tools learning how to build things. And I took them in the garage and I put one in the vise and I hit it with a hammer and it exploded. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it made a bang. So I put another one in and hit that. <laughs> and I thought, well, there's about 20 in the box. And after about two or three, it got a little boring. I thought, what the heck am I gonna do with the rest of these detonators? And so it was in the fall of the year, and in our kitchen, uh, we didn't we didn't have a hot water heater the way you have it today. We had a little um, cast iron stove, and it bur burned coal, and it had pipes running around inside the stove somewhere and that's how we got hot water and the, the water would come in run around this and go out the other end and hopefully it was hot enough to take a bath or whatever wash dishes or whatever you got to do and I walked in with this box of detonators and I lifted now this is it's one of the list of stupid things I did all in my life. Mm -hmm. I lifted the lid, dropped the box of detonators in there and on these glowing red hot coals. And I hadn't got, I didn't get out of the kitchen when the whole box went up and it blew the stove apart. It blew the red hot coals all over the floor of the kitchen and water started flying because it broke the pipes. And I didn't know what to do. And fortunately, my dad was home. Mom was home. They came running. And they dealt with the situation. And I was, I was uh, disciplined, let's say, for <laughs> months. <laughs> but you know those were the dumb things we'd do I mean we had access to all this stuff and I have had that hand grenade stuff for years and I finally one day took it to my son who lives in Minnesota and he has it now hmm. and uh so, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know, just one thing after another all through the war. Um, so. Wow. That's a great story. That's a great one. Where do you want to go with this Can you tell us a little more about rationing? Um, yeah. Like, was sailing affected at all by rationing? Like, did you need gasoline? Was washing? Was sailing? Oh, well, we, no, we did everything by wind, so, you know, there wasn't any, we rode bicycles, so we didn't have any gas rationing, uh, but food was rationed, and gasoline, of course, was rationed, but we didn't start to drive until pretty much the end of the war. And then gasoline was 15 cents a gallon. And uh, so, you know, I never, my father, I'm sure, experienced gasoline rationing, but uh, the farmers did. But, you know, in those days, most of the farmers plowed with horses. Uh, they would bring their food to town with horse-drawn carriages, 
And I mean, it wasn't that they didn't have tractors, but they also had a lot of horses. And during the war, I did a lot of work with horses. Can you remember any recipes or any meals that you had that were affected by rationing? Uh, no. Like foods you didn't like? Can you, John? Well, I'm wondering, there wasn't much sugar. So I'm wondering how that, yeah. mom, mom was a great Sugar cook, wasn't much, but. All the time, but I don't know, did she let up on desserts because of the rationing? I know they, they had to ration sugar. I don't know. Butter. I, I, my Most mom handled all that. Okay. Um. I was thinking of one thing in that. Uh, remember I don't how remember. they mixed margarine? Hmm? Oh, yeah, we had margarine, butter. You couldn't get butter. And I don't know if you've heard about margarine, but it, it's a greasy-looking stuff. And so you'd, you'd buy that, and then they'd give you this dye, and you'd mix the dye with it to make it look yellow. So it looked like butter. It didn't taste anything like butter. And we used a lot of lard and bacon grease and all that kind of stuff because you couldn't get butter. But, Tell them uh, where you lived, Tim. Hmm? Tell them where you lived. I lived on High Street, um, half a block from the river. Wow. And uh, so... I spent a lot of time on the river. Yeah, the big white house, a white house with gray shutters and a wraparound porch. Yeah, 119. 119 High Street. Yeah, it's in it's in here. Picture of it. And tell me, you didn't tell them about swimming in the river. Well, that's in here too. If have you read the book? I skimmed through it. Okay. Well, back in those days, there was no sewer plant in the town, and none of the towns had sewer plant. Um, all the sewer, well, first of all, when the houses were built, they didn't even have bathrooms. They had an outhouse out back. And then uh, in the 30s, they started putting bathrooms in the houses. And so... Um, a lot of the houses, you'd see a pipe coming out of the side of the house and down the side of the house. That was the sewer pipe. And that went to a big, huge pipe in the middle of High Street. And that went down to the river at the foot of High Street. And it all went in the river. And... Nobody thought anything about that. That's the way it was. You know, it was good to have the river there to put that in. Yeah. But we would go down to the country club, which is down on Quickerneck Wharf Road, and on our bicycles and swim down there. And we say today, Mackie will tell you this, that we're all very healthy. <laughs> she, said. Yeah. she also said you guys would go down to one of the doctors and get lined up for shots for typhoid or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we get all that. Yeah. But um, we'd go down there every day and we'd swim. And as soon as you got in the water, you'd have this brown thing, kind of like your mustache right here on... <laughs> Right here, when we'd come back up the ladder and sit down, that'd be the first to take a towel and wipe that off. <laughs> and the fish and the crabs were great. <laughs> and they'd say all clear when it was clear to jump in the water when there was nothing passing by. Yeah, and, oh. and the, um, every evening, about six or eight of the black gentlemen would go down to the pipe, the end of the pipe, with their little bamboo fishing rod and catch dinner. The uh, catfish loved it. Mm -hmm. And they'd catch big catfish like this and take them home, and that would be dinner. Wow. 
Would a lot of people fish and um, like hunt and crab during the war to just make up for rations? Well, yeah. I mean, that was uh, a lot. I mean, you could catch fish like we we would uh, get a big box of crabs, steam crabs, and four or five uh, fishing lines with bucktails on the end. Do you know what a bucktail is? It's a weight that looks like a fish, and it has a big hook in the end and feathers down at the end. And we'd chuck four or five of those lines over the back and sail around eating crabs and pull in croakers and rockfish and that we'd take them home to mom and dad, and that'd be dinner, wow. or for two or three nights. <laughs> but catching fish was quite easy. There were just fish and crabs were everywhere. So that's changed a lot now. They've overfished, over crabbed everything. But back in those days, it it was uh, not a problem. Stick your hand in the water and pull out a well, you know, because they were just thousands of them around where the sewer went out. I mean, most of them catfish. They're scavengers. So, um, what else? There were um, lots of trucks coming into town um, bringing materials for the powder plant. Um, President Roosevelt visited town several times. Yeah, he spoke and was given a, an honorary degree at uh, Washington College. President Truman came through. I have a picture of uh, him in a convertible uh, going down Queen Street with... Um, security guards on the running board of the convertible and he's sitting in the back with his white hat on and uh, there were parades we had every uh i don't know that probably still have memorial day parade but back in those days the boy scouts and national guard military all were and they were big, big things. Did you say you went to Washington College? Mm hmm What year did you graduate? In 1952. Okay. That's when I moved out of Chestertown. Oh. I got a job over here. Oh. Um, how was going to college with, like, all the GIs? Like, did that affect you? Well, the college back in those days was about 700 students and was nothing like it is today. Um, it has become a very, very nice, well-established college. Uh, it was not that well-established when I went there. Um, it, it, I mean, it was a, I got a good education and I did well with what I got, but it was nothing like what you have now. And, uh, but, you know, uh, they would have a pajama parade. Did you know about that? No. <laughs> it's great. We want to hear that one. <laughs> well, in the, I think it was in, the, it would be in the records of the college, I'm sure, but um, I think as soon after the school began, in the fall, as I remember, uh, the students would all parade through town in their pajamas. <laughs> and I'm sure there's, it was called the pajama parade. It'd go right by our house. And, and, you know, a couple of them would play a horn or something, and they'd just walk by in their pajamas, all the girls and all the guys. And, so why uh, did that huh? Why? I don't know. I bet that. It was just something they did. Yeah. Never heard of that. Yeah, that was the... We'll look that up. That's, huh? We'll look that up. We'll yeah, look that up. I, I'm sure they don't do it today, but they did it back then. Well, Tommy was a community 
You, you lived at home. I lived at home, walked up there and back six times a day. I was in a fraternity, and uh, so I would walk up in the morning, walk back for lunch, walk back for afternoon classes, walk back for dinner, and walk back up for fraternity doings and back after that. What fraternity were you in? Lambda Chi Alpha. Hmm? I don't think that's there anymore. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. It used to be fraternity homes right on Washington Avenue, right in, right north of East and West Hall. Okay. Okay. Got it. Yeah. There were wooden buildings, and we had a nice white wooden building, <laughs> and a number of people lived there, and I lived at home. So, close enough. Like, you know, I make that walk. Yeah. yeah. I kept in good shape doing that. Yeah. Six times a day. Yeah, well, six up well, and back. Yeah. Three three times three a day shirts. up and back. Yeah. Wow. Um, we're wondering if you've heard anything about German POWs. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the thing I was going to tell you about. When I mentioned the farmers and whatnot, yeah, the German POWs were um, over near just the other side of Church Hill uh, on Route 213, halfway between Church Hill and, and uh, Centerville. There was a big uh, fenced-in area that they lived in, it was like a concentration camp, sort of like you would see about the Germans, with towers, with guards in the towers and stuff. But I don't, to my knowledge, they never had any problem with any of the Germans, and they would work at farms. Um, and that's how a lot of the farmers got their produce done. Every morning they would go out and work the farms with hoes and rakes and all that kind of stuff. So there, we would see them. They would be used trucks to cart them around to the various places, and uh, they always seemed to be happy to be there. <laughs> but yes, I remember that. Do you remember seeing anything up close, or do you know anyone that? Of the, the, the concentrate the camp. Only as we rode by it. Okay. Um, and my father worked for the State Roads Commission, and he traveled all the roads every day, and I would ride with him sometimes, and I remember going by that many times. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what they wore? Just... Oh, gosh, I don't know if they wore uniforms or... I think they did, but, like, jeans. I I really don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we've heard, like, um, that they had... Some people say they have sweaters. Other people say they just have, like, the button-down shirts. I don't... don't, I'm a bad one on that. I was more focused on what they look like. Yeah, sure. Hmm? Do you know when oh, at the end of the war, of course, they sent them all home. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever see them, like, walking on the streets? Or? Never did. No, but that didn't mean that they didn't, because I think the longer they were there, the more everybody got used to them being there, and I, I can't remember any problems with them. But there were there was a big camp of them. About how many do you think were there? I don't know. I I would guess several hundred, but I I really don't know. I'm sure all that's in the papers. Yeah. We're looking. Yeah. Sit through. Um, but do you remember hearing about a black market in Chestertown? No, I don't. 
Now, my mom would have, because she might have known about that. But what did your mom well, anytime there's rationing, usually there's some sort of black market. Yeah, what did your mom do during the war? She was a school teacher, but that was it. I mean, she collected bacon grease and she did all the things. She did a lot of cooking where she made the things uh, rather than buy them because they weren't available. But, you know, back in those days, grocery stores were nothing like they are today. They were just shops with big shelves and guys had a long stick with a clamp on the end and if you wanted a box of cereal it was up near the ceiling and they'd reach up there and get you a box of cereal and put it down cereal and put it down on the counter and run up and down the aisle reaching for stuff on the on in the shelves and then when you got what you needed they would pull over a paper bag and look at what you had on the counter and write down they had all that in their head put down 50 cents 80 cents 95 cents dollar 20 line it all up and real quick add it all up in their head say you owe ten dollars and 23 cents pay them that they put it all in the bag and that was it the way you'd go no computers, no nothing. Just paper bag and a pencil. Always had a pencil in their ear. <laughs> Where was the place to go in town for groceries that you remember? Well, on the corner of of um, Queen Street and High Street was uh, Ben Heller's Meat Market, and that was about five doors from our house. So uh, we dealt there a lot. Uh, Mr. Heller ran that for Lord knows how long. And then up one block north was the Acme and the A&P. And those were the grocery stores. And they all were the same. So that's where we got our groceries. But a lot of times uh, farmers would have a farmer mar farmer's market. And uh, I remember the boats would come in down at the end of High Street to pick up their produce to take to Baltimore to sell it or to the canneries in Baltimore. And they would come in with tomatoes in tomato baskets. I don't know if you know what a to wooden tomato basket looks like, but it's smaller than a bushel basket and they'd have a horse and horse wagons would come down high street loaded with baskets of tomatoes being pulled by two horses slowly down the road and all of us kids carried a salt and pepper shaker in our pocket and we had a mixture of salt and pepper in the salt and pepper shaker and we would run up behind one of the wagons, reach up, grab two or three nice big fat tomatoes each, and then go over and sit on the curb and put a little salt and pepper on it and eat tomatoes. Wow. <laughs> that was a favorite passed on, picking up tomatoes and eating them. We all carried a salt and pepper shaker. So they'd load those on the boat, and away they'd go. Wow. And there's also a pickle factory up right next to the uh, cemetery. Mm -hmm. It's now, I think, some sort of a fitness place or something. Okay. There's a gym right there. Yeah. Gym there. Mm -hmm. But that was a pickle factory, and I worked there for many years. Um, that was quite a job. Yeah. What do you do in a pickle factory? Well, 
um, the the thing was owned by Vita Food. Uh, they they did pickles, and they did um, canned herring fish, and the fish would come in from north in tanker cars. Those big rounds that were that they haul uh, oil in, and the on the railroad, they'd fill that with fish and fish oil. And the heads and everything were in there. How those kept in the heat, I don't know. I, I have no idea. But one of my jobs was to get down in that and unload with a big net, unload that. They had these girls that would slice the pickles, and they had pickle slicers that would run up and down like this. And they never stopped. And uh, my job was to put the cucumbers in the bins in front of the girls. And they would stand up on this little platform, pick up a cucumber and put it in this, just like that. And they'd get in a rhythm to put it in as the thing went up and down very unsafe and hardly a day would go by that one of the girls didn't lose part of her hand and that fingers would drop down in on the belt there's a belt running underneath we had another guy he was at the end collecting the chipped up pickles in a barrel and then he he would take those over to be cooked or whatever they were going to do with them. And then we'd shut down the line, go get the fingers and get the blood cleaned up and whatnot, and the girl would, that would be the end of her job because she wouldn't be able to work there anymore. And get another girl, put her in there, and it'd start all up again. And um, it seemed like nobody thought anything much about that. But... Uh, it, it was, I'm, I earned 50 cents an hour. I'd come home absolutely filthy. And uh, my mom would make me take my clothes off on the back porch because she didn't want them in the house. And I'd run up and get a bath, and she'd wash the clothes, <laughs> get them ready for the next day. But... Uh, we would, um, one time we, um, we would, the, the, the pickles would go down the line. The girls would put, say, um, we would do sweet pickles, the little jerkins. So they'd stuff them in the jars. And then they'd go through and get a sweet brine on it, which was made up in the attic of the plant. And then they'd go through and the thing would put the lid on. And then we, our job was to pick them up and put them in the boxes and stack the boxes on a wagon, and that would go to the warehouse. And uh, one time, I remember a train. They were ultimately loaded on train and taken to market wherever they were going. And one of the trains came back with about three or four big, huge boxcars. And it turned out that the thing that put the lid on didn't put it on right. And all the pickles in the boxcar spoiled. And it was dripping fermented brine. And the, it was absolute stinky mess. And we had to get in there and unload the boxcars open up the jars, dump the material out into barrels with holes in them to drain. You'd think they'd throw it away, but they didn't. And that would drain for several days. And the flies would come and get all over it because, you know, they just draw flies. And then they'd take that and grind it up and that became relish and um, 
Then when they got it ground up, they had these half barrels. It's a barrel sawed in half with holes all in it. That's where they, the ground up pickle stuff would go. And that had to sit out on the concrete loading dock. There were like 150 or 200 of those stacked up for days draining. And the fruit flies would come and cover it. And our job was to take a canoe paddle and stir it. Every, we had to do that two or three times a day. And so we would load things and do our job. And then the boss would say, time to go stir the relish. So we'd take our canoe paddle and go down there and stir the relish. And so what we'd do when nobody was looking, we'd see that there were, the whole top of each barrel was covered. It was black with fruit fries. And so we'd very gently stick the paddle down in there. And then we had a contest that would uh, say who could trap how many, the most fruit flies in this mess. And we'd put the paddle in and then real quick we'd flip it <laughs> and see how many fruit flies we could catch in the. <laughs> oh, and we eat relish today, but I don't think we eat five of them. It was a long time before I could eat pickles and relish. Yeah. But I'd, I'm okay now. But uh, those were all things that went on. Um, gosh, uh, up near the college on the hill, they had these huge, huge um, wooden storage air area. These were tanks, wooden tanks that were... 10 or 12 feet in diameter and maybe 8 or 10 feet tall. And there were dozens of them up there. So what they would do was um, cucumbers would come in by the 18-wheeler truckload from all across the south and Maryland and Pennsylvania and that came, they came during the summer, and the pickle plant needed to operate all year. So when the, many of the truckloads of cucumbers that came would get dumped in those big vats, the, we'd, we'd take a truck up there and unload the thing and load, uh, fill the vats. And then they had a wooden slat that went on top and then you'd take about five bags of salt, big, huge bags of salt, and break the bags and dump them on the top of the slat. And the rainwater would rain in there, and the bugs would be in there, mosquitoes would be in there, God knows what all was in there. And over, sometimes those, those cucumbers would stay there two or three years all during the winter and the summer. And, and they would be compressed down because of the weight and they would lose their color. They would become white. And so here were all these flat white things that looked like old beat up shoe soles. And when they needed some of those pickles to process through the machinery, we would go up there, take the slat off the top, get down in, and we usually tons of dirt because the college heated all of his, all the classrooms with coal, and that's right next to it. And the, the tower for the coal thing is still there, and that's, filter down and be all in these pickles and everything. I mean, it was a mess. And we had to fish them out of there and put them in these carts and run them down to the plant, put them in barrels, and put alum and turmeric and water in there and then stick a steam pipe in there. And that would cook the pickles. And lo and behold, they would swell up, turn green again, 
and look like brand new cucumbers. <laughs> and they'd get sliced up and then it would go in the jar. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun working at the pickle factory. <laughs> No. Oh. Oh, yeah. So basically, um, this is actually kind of the second part into the, um, the project. Our first part was actually interviewing veterans of World War II okay. mm -hmm. um, that were living in Chestertown and the surrounding area. So our second idea was to actually see what the town and the college was like during the war. Uh -huh. um, so we started getting some contacts, including Mackie. Um, who showed us your book and we're like that's the time frame we're yeah, looking for yes. right um so we've been interviewing washington college alumni like and other people who've lived in town all their lives yeah um just to see like what what would you do with it so that brings us to kind of another thing um one of our ideas is to have a multimedia performance. Have, have a multimedia multimedia performance so uh -huh. we'll have gallery in River Arts um, by the Dunkin Donuts um, so we were wondering if you could just let me actually find a sign right there um, it just this paper is just stating that you'll give us permission to use your voice oh, in sure. a future performances sure. um, feel free to look through it too yeah I mean it's just it just says um, you'll give us permission to use your voice and actually store it in our college archives yeah no problem. So. And you still have rights to use this for whatever you want to. Yeah. I'm sorry? You still have rights to all of this, too. Yeah. So, it's so right. if you want to write another book, you, no. can, you can use this. Yeah. Well, what you were mentioning the veterans. And um, right after the war, they reactivated the National Guard in Chestertown. Do you know where the armory is? Yes. Yeah. Um, and... The many of the veterans who grew up in Chestertown, came back to Chestertown, were involved with the National Guard. And uh, I joined the National Guard about that time. And so I knew many of these guys and I listen to their stories and it was really neat uh, they named the the armory after um, um, blimp noonan it's the noonan national guard armory i think the college owns it now yes. yeah we just bought it <laughs> yeah and uh they called him Blimp because he was a huge, huge yeah. guy. And uh, he was the, um, he was the um, person that took care of uniforms and all the equipment storage, sort of like the storage area. And a very funny guy. The uh, leader of the thing was uh, Ringo Elburn. He was the master sergeant. He ran the thing, the whole thing. And uh, I remember another guy. They they were all in the uh, Battle of the Bulge together. Hmm. And Blimp, being a big guy, he um, he they would all tell stories all the time, and they'd laugh about certain things and they were in the Battle of the Bulge when the Germans uh, pushed their final assault, their final effort to turn the tide mm -hmm. and um, so there were all kinds of munitions raining down on these guys and Blimp ran and dove into a shell hole but he couldn't get his rear end all the way in and uh, and a fluorescent shell, some of the fluorescent material went into his rear end. 
and was burning in there. And so he'd, this is, this is saved forever now. He'd, he'd tell the story about and the kids, the other guys would tease him about, yeah, I remember when that piece of it was <laughs> in your ass. And, <laughs> and the other guy, another guy, they had names for each other. And one of them was, uh, they called him Bad Guys. And uh, he, he was a funny guy. Um, and anyway, uh, those are things I remember, but that was after the war. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. That's a great story. So anyhow, that, um, I think Mr. Ringo, Sergeant Ringo, just died a couple of years oh. ago. Blimp, I remember. He would give out his, the guns, he'd give out the uniforms, and then he didn't have anything to do. He'd sit down in a chair in the storeroom, and I remember two or three times he'd go to sleep and just roll off the chair <laughs> onto the floor. <laughs> he, must, he must have been so, big, too big to be a soldier, Tom. Date of the interviews, June 16. I was wondering if it was like Tony or Townie. Townie for Townie. Okay. We have a friend whose daughter just became the assistant coach for lacrosse for Washington College. Oh. Really? Her name is Jennifer. I don't know her last name, Townie. Do you? I wouldn't know. Oh, she just got it. Yes, she just got. Okay. She she was a student there. Oh. And then she spent a year in Oberlin mm -hmm. as assistant. Now they brought her back for assistant coach. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know her last name. But her first name's Jennifer. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, think I've, I think I've heard her name. Are but you a lacrosse player? No. no. <laughs> I, I trip over my own feet. Like. <laughs> so is this for a course? Um, this is actually a, a summer internship. Internship. Right? internship. Yeah. I get internship credit for it, so I'm calling it an internship. Great. Um, Great. Yeah. Yeah. So we're actually down here for five weeks. Oh. Um, this is our... Fourth week? Fourth, yeah. Fourth week. Yeah. Um, and then you put it together? And we'll put it together during our fall semester. So oh, like okay. the whole um, thing will come out about uh, around Veterans Day. Mm -hmm. um, oh, good. We usually have it. Um, so we'll send you yeah, an let email. Yeah, let are going to show it. We'll yeah. come see it. Yeah. It, oh. We did it uh, last semester, at, well, fall semester. What and it would be in the great. In Decker? Decker oh, Theater? Is that like a performance hall? Yeah. Yes. I'm going to take this. Okay. 